Welcome to the December edition of the Crossroads Podcast, where we promise to deliver you the best infrastructure news in 30 minutes or less, or deliver you a free pizza. I'm your host, John Burke, America's Editor for Information. And joining me today, uh, and a very busy man these days, Kent Rowey, a partner in the Projects Energy and Infrastructure Group at Allen & Overy. Uh, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. And uh, also, of course, uh, another busy man, information reporter Andrew Vitelli. Thanks for coming to the program today, Andrew. Yep, thanks for having me on. Kent, we're trying to end the year here, but uh, there's still too many things to deal with, it looks like. Um, I thought this would be a good way to kick off the show to talk about, I think, what's going to be a very hot button issue in 2020, and that's fund deployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we seem to be in the final stages of both uh, Global Infrastructure Partners and Brookfield Infrastructure Partners closing the latest iteration of their funds at $22 billion. From the latest public totals, Blackstone Infrastructure Partners will was at $14 billion as of the third quarter for their open-ended fund. And then it sounds like there's another iteration of existing asset managers yet to come in 2020, uh, raising money. So from all this, lots of dry powder. What industries do you think will attract inflow from these funds in 2020 and why? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, trend in the fund space with uh, these funds uh, growing to the size they're growing. Um, I mean, Brookfield and GIP have been big funds for a while now. Um, And so that's probably less surprising than some of the funds who started out uh, in the middle market space um, and at fund three or four have grown by multiples of about three or four. For example, I-squared, EQT, Stone Peak. What it does is put those funds into a different category in terms of equity check, obviously. Um, And uh, funds of that size are reluctant to devote resources to deals that don't meet their their check size uh, criteria. So I think what that does is force some of these funds into larger transactions, and in particular, look at the take private space. Uh, so there are private assets for sale, but not many of a size that would meet the equity check criteria. So these funds will be looking at publicly listed companies and uh, look to take fr- private or for carve-outs from publicly listed funds. Um, and one area that I think has been you know, a little ignored, with the exception of IFM's uh, deal um, uh, a couple of years ago, um, are some of the big infrastructure slash construction companies that are publicly listed, particularly in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, their stock price has been depressed for a while. Uh, there seems to be value there. And for funds of this size, you could see structures, for example, like an LBO of one of those big funds, where you buy the company, take it private, uh, you sell off the construction assets and keep the infrastructure portfolio. So I think there will be a lot of deals like that. I still maintain some hope for uh, public uh to private uh, on the transportation side. Uh, I know that sector has been um, slow in in recent years, uh, particularly in the surface transportation area, but there are assets still available around the country, and with the right policy push, I see potential in, you know, potentially monetizing big turnpikes, for example, where you need checks of, uh, you know, 250, 300, up to $500 million. In addition, I think there's going to be uh, further consolidation in the utility space. 
you know, for example, water utilities or combination, multi-utilities, combination of electricity, water, uh, et cetera. And, you know, Jacksonville is a, a case in point. And I think there's trapped value in a lot of public or municipally owned utilities that could be unlocked through a monetization type of transaction. You know, potentially some activity around in those spaces, but it's it's going to be a challenge because there is a scarcity of assets sort of in general given current, you know, macroeconomic conditions. It's, you know, still, I think, pretty much a seller's market um, and difficult to find value when you're looking at transactions of that size. But it certainly, I think, pushes these funds into looking at uh, publicly traded companies uh, for carve-outs and and take privates. Yeah, there's actually uh, been talk that JEA might uh, get sold in two transactions. Of course, the water utility on one end and the power utility on the other. Yes. Um, and I'm sure they're getting you know bids in that area uh, uh, because of that. But that's... Um, and then be, Santi yeah. was announced uh, yeah. not so long ago. Sure. Bids are in, and that's also a fairly sizable transaction. And it's a multi-utility, and so you could see prospects for maybe breaking it up and selling off different bits of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Andrew? So one one area that we've seen a lot of activity in 2019 and probably even more interest is the university and college campus utility space uh, where private companies and, and private infrastructure funds have been getting in and in some cases paying an upfront payment for a campus utility system. And just this week, we saw a, a big deal with a more than $1 billion upfront payment at the University of Iowa approved. Now... Now, we're still early innings here. There have only been a few of these deals that have reached uh, financial close, but it seems like there really is something of a pipeline. And I'm curious why you think uh, this space has maybe had more success in bringing, you know, in maintaining interest so far, at least, than we've seen in other P3 areas. So this is a, a sector that's near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to have been involved in, you know, the OSU transaction for the winning team. And full disclosure, since you men- mentioned Iowa, um, our firm is representing um, the winning bidding team, um, NG and Meridium, on, on that transaction. And I, and I was leading our team. So I'm a little constrained to what I can say specifically about Iowa, apart from what is, is public. But in terms of a trend... Um, university transactions um, of that type, I think, make uh, a lot of sense. And the reason is that um, a university's core mission is education and research. And a lot of the big uh, universities also have medical centers uh, that are attached to them and see their mission as providing education, resource, and medical services rather than running their infrastructure. It's a non-core component of the university's mission. Um, In addition, um, even big universities with healthy endowments, I think, are looking to get their balance sheets in order and to augment their endowments by monetizing these assets. So you really solve a couple of problems. Um, You you resolve uh, issues on the balance sheet and or, you know, repaying debt, for example, and or um, uh, adding some funds to the endowment. At the same time, you relieve the university of the responsibility of running uh, a utility, an energy utility embedded within uh, the campus. And instead, you look to the private sector, um, you do a long-term lease, and essentially outsource the utility service uh, to the private sector. And 
it, it, it makes sense. You know, you're, you're basically um, hiring the experts to run your utility and looking to uh, deploy best practices, um, you know, especially with the trend towards decarbonization generally in the country, universities are sort of leading that trend. And so, you know, uh, Iowa, case in point, you know, has coal-fired generation, and one of the big features of the deal was getting Iowa off coal within five years, and I think a lot of other universities will have the same interests, and you can get from um, a coal-fired plant to uh, burning, you know, renewables and other sources um, that, that don't uh, pollute much in a much quicker way uh, if you do a deal with the private sector because they've been doing this for years, they've got the technical expertise uh, to do it, and are really the leaders in innovation. Um, uh, so I think uh, there will be uh, more of these transactions in addition to the ones that have been announced. So you, you know, University of Idaho, for example, uh, has announced a transaction. We hear that Fresno State uh, potentially is coming out to market with um, uh, with with a process uh, fairly shortly, um, there is Dartmouth University, which announced uh, some time ago. Uh, so um, you know the current pipeline looks promising, but look at the other universities. I mean, you know the the Big Ten is is an extremely competitive uh, set of universities at a lot of levels, um, and I think that's going to translate also into the way that they handle their infrastructure. So now that Ohio State has done a deal, now that Iowa has done a deal, how much further can Wisconsin? Michigan, um, University of Illinois, you know, be behind them. Uh, so I've got um, a lot of optimism about about that sector, and I think there's going to be um, a lot of deal flow. Um, I think w what's interesting is going to be, you know, sort of the the level of um, appetite uh, getting to the point where um, the the returns are pushed down to a level that may not be uh, be interesting. So there might be a little bit of tension, like with anything that's publicly tendered in the public sector. Uh, cost of capital is a concern. Um, and, you know, what I hope is that, it, and I don't think it's gone that way yet, but what I hope is that it doesn't go to the point where these deals become sort of a cost of capital shootout and there isn't as much attention paid, you know, to the technical solutions and the innovation that's being provided by the private sector as they go into these transactions. I guess we, we haven't talked about this too, but there's also that asset recycling element to it too with the upfront payment feature um, which seems like a tremendous potential tool for any university when you're able to structure something like that. Well, well, right. And so, and going back to the point I, I started with, you know, balance sheet management, you know, universities, I think, are all looking for ways to um, uh, repay debt, to be less reliant on their own borrowings, to build infrastructure and to maintain infrastructure. You can accomplish that while at the same time raising money up front that can be deployed for the university's core mission. So it makes sense on a lot of levels. You know, it's one of those win-win type of sectors where the sell side gets what it's looking for. Um, it's a great sector for private capital to be deployed in because distributed generation has, you know, for a number of years now, uh, been, you know, essentially a private sector uh, activity. So it's a great confluence of, um, uh, you know, being able to do what the private sector does best, invest, provide innovation and uh, enable the universities to do what they do best, which is educate and do research. Can I just ask one more question on the Ohio State thing, um, project, excuse me. Has there been any, um, has it gone functional yet, Tito? 
transaction. Yes. It, so again, I, I I was involved in that transaction. Our firm was, and I I have to be you know uh, obviously circumspect about what I can say. But um, yes, the transaction <clears throat> you know closed. Um, there was a transition uh, to uh, the NG Axiom team, mm-hmm. um, and the uh, utility has been operating now for you know for some time. Okay. And and by all accounts, you know it's it's been successful. Uh, you know, OSU is getting you know what it expected out of it, and you know, equally the private sector uh, is is it well is as well. And I think you know another important component of this is the partnership aspect of it. Uh, you know, everybody in our industry tends to focus on the financial elements of these transactions. You know, what did somebody pay? What are they going to earn on the capital they uh, invest? But uh, looking at, at Ohio State and Iowa in particular, there are components to um, the winning bids which actually contribute to the econo- uh, to the educational mission. So in the case of Ohio State, there is an academy that is being established where um, students at Ohio State can basically attend uh, clinical type classes with uh, uh, with the NG um, Axiom team and, and learn how a utility is run and how a distributed generation business works, mm-hmm. you know, as part of an adjunct to what the university offers on the academic side. There's a similar thing happening at Ohio State. So, you know, in addition to raising money, repaying debt, getting your balance sheet in order, um, refocusing on core activities, you also provide something to, I think, uh, the student uh, the student body in terms of educational opportunities. You know, you have companies like NG, you know, Veolia, et cetera, who um, have um, great uh, R&D, uh, great innovation, um, and it's an opportunity for the private sector to share that R&D innovation um, with, um, with university students. And I think that's another sort of unsung aspect of these transactions. So you bring up the Ohio State deal, and before they did the utility P3, they had done a parking P3, and those are also a lot of the a lot of the goals you mention in terms of getting an upfront payment and focusing on the core educational uh, educational aspects. And we've seen a little bit less of those as the focus has shifted to the utility space. And I'm curious whether you think that all the interest in the utility. Uh, and these utility transactions could generate interest in other in other areas on the campus that that the university might see as non-core to its educational mission and where private sector dollars might be interested I do. Um, you know, the again on OSU, um, you, you know, we we represented the um, the winning bidder on that deal to OSU parking. So, uh, just with respect to what is what is public, um, I think the drivers for that deal are very similar to the drivers for the utility type deals. And I am somewhat surprised that there haven't been more uh, university parking deals that have come to market following Ohio State. I can't think of any reason why they shouldn't. Not really any structural impediments to it, and you know there is a template that has been used successfully. So I think there will be more. And um, you know, just offering a theory about why we haven't seen as many. I think um, areas like housing, for example, and utilities are just higher up the priority list for the universities uh, that are looking to do these deals. And although you know these universities have you know big functions and can handle a lot of things at the same time, these deals are complicated and they're um, time-consuming processes to to run. And in, in in my view, I think it's really a case of prioritization. You know, if you're looking to do what one of these 
monetization deals can do. You then look at the assets that you have that you think you can raise the most money with, which will be most immediately executable. Um, uh, and, and, and I think utilities and housing sort of come at the top of the list. The other element of parking, um, which I don't think should serve as an impediment, but does, um, you know, potentially um, raise uh, concerns and 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 questions, is the effect it has on rates. Uh, because, you know, in a uh, university parking deal, the revenue stream is provided by students and faculty and visitors to the university actually paying the rates. And I think there is concern, I th- in off- in often uh, unfounded concerns, that if you um, do a concession deal for parking, uh, that will translate into higher rates and potentially uncontrollably uh, higher rates. That's a misconception, you know, in the case of OSU. And I think any parking deal that would get done, there's rate regulation in the concession agreement itself. And so at the time the deal is approved, the Board of Regents or whatever governing body is going to uh, be responsible for um, for authorizing the deal will have visibility on the maximum amount that rates can go to. And so in terms of communicating the impact on rates to the stakeholders, and in particular the people who are going to be making the payments, everybody knows what they're getting into up front. And I think that should dispel the worries about well, look, the private sector is going to come in and it's going to gouge people. And, you know, before you know it, you have a university parking system where parking becomes uh, more expensive and becomes, you know, sort of an issue in the overall affordability of, of a university education. And that may be one reason why people who haven't really learned enough about how these deals work might be more averse to parking. Um, hopefully that could be overcome. And I think, you know, for universities who want to take a deeper dive and understand what it's all about and understand that there will be regulation in your concession agreement if you do a parking deal you know those deals could could make a lot of sense and and i do think there will be more of them but i I think in at least in my opinion i think we'll be seeing more on the utility side and then more on the housing side too which itself has been a fairly vibrant market for private investment for a number of years and actually a lot of big deals in the student housing sector predate the Ohio State parking deal, Ohio State utilities, and um, Iowa's uh, utility deals. So I think that you know housing will continue to be an interesting sector, both for universities to seek private investment and for investors themselves to to put money to work. Good. All right. Well, yeah, that's definitely an interesting thing to keep an eye on, and I think probably once a few of these deals are in the books, maybe people in other universities will get some comfort. So something we'll be keeping track of. Now, shifting gears, it's been many years now that people have been waiting for the uh, U.S. airport privatization space to really take off, so to speak. And it's, it's there's been a lot of disappointments. I know my home city of White Plains looked at privatizing uh, their airport, and it didn't end up happening. But now it looks like there is some activity, there is some interest, and there is maybe a little bit of a pipeline for opportunities. Will 2020 be the year of airport privatization? I'm not sure about privatization. Um, So to back up a little bit, um, at the moment, there are basically three ways for private capital to invest in, you know, the airport sector. You know, one is, you know, full-blown privatization under um, uh, the privatization, the federal privatization statute. Um, As you mentioned, there have been, you know, very few deals done. In fact, really just one real privatization in in Puerto Rico, Um, one very high profile failed privatization, Chicago Midway, 
And then um, uh, a few airports have, um, you know, flirted with the idea with, you know, essentially two active deals that I'm aware of at the moment, one being St. Louis and the other being the Airglades transaction in southern Florida where our firm is involved uh, representing the sponsors. So there is some deal flow on the privatization side. Um, I think the reason why there hasn't been as much probably is all airports aren't created equal, and sometimes there's a mismatch on expectations about you know the value you can get from privatizing your airport. Um, and the buy side's expectation about you know exactly what the what the asset is worth. So, privatizations in some regions, you know, i.e. in regions where uh, there's a proven traffic story uh, for the airport, um, uh, and in areas where there are um, innovative. Uh, transactions being done where there is a need, an unmet need that, you know, hasn't been met by a public airport. And I think the Airglades transaction is a great example of that. But I think those transactions will be actually far and few between than the second area of of investment opportunity in the airport space, which are the terminal code deals. And, you know, prominent examples of that are here in our backyard in New York with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey's deals at uh, LaGuardia Airport, where the central terminal is being redeveloped by a private consortium. JFK redevelopment uh, under Governor Cuomo's um, uh, vision plan, um, you know, currently has uh, three major redevelopments underway. Um, There's the Southern Quadrant, uh, Terminal 1, which our firm is involved in. Uh, There's uh, the uh, Northern Quadrant, which is uh, led by uh, a JetBlue sponsored consortium. Um, And then there's uh, Terminal 8, which is being redeveloped by BA and American Airlines. And um, those transactions, I think, are um, more interesting and in a way um, easier than the privatization transactions because A lot of airports have fairly extensive experience in leasing out uh, land and facilities to airlines who have built and operated terminals. Um, And it's not a big step from that experience to going to a structure where you actually bring in um, a private operator to operate the consortium and the terminal itself becomes, you know, a multi-airline terminal that can service a particular category of airlines. So you take the Terminal 1 deal at JFK, for example. Um, When it's finished, it will be a combination of the existing Terminal 1 Um, existing Terminal 2 and the disused, what used to be Terminal 3 and which is now a site for Delta hard stands into one big, you know, nearly 2 million square foot terminal for um, uh, international premium traffic at JFK. Um, That's an extremely interesting investment um, opportunity because JFK is a slot-constrained airport. Um, uh, It is the main gateway of entry for a lot of international travel. I think it's probably the biggest international gateway. So as a business, extremely interesting on the aeronautical side. And then on the non-aeronautical side, since it's an international terminal, um, you have um, uh, very interesting concession uh, opportunities, retail, food and beverage, etc., So from um, a private investor's point of view, it provides an opportunity to um, deploy capital, make uh, reasonable returns with, you know, a fairly stable revenue stream. In fact, you know, a a growing revenue stream just based on the uh, the forecast traffic growth for the entire airport and the region's uh, GDP. Those deals are not regulated by the FAA. So you don't need to go to the FAA to get an approval to do the transaction 
unlike the privatization deals, where you know once you do a deal with the airport, uh, you then need to go to the FAA. You have to apply for an approval. Uh, the FAA takes you know a four to six month period of time to review the application, and then you get your approval. Plus, you need the approval of uh, the airlines or a percentage of the airlines that call at the airport. So you've got governmental approvals to worry about at the federal level, and then you have on the airline side, you know, uh, a very big voice by the airlines and whether the deal can go forward or not. Whereas in the terminal uh, co-type structure, you don't need to go to the FAA for approval other than construction approvals for uh, the environmental impact assessment that would be necessary for the construction. And your relationship with the airlines is basically a commercial relationship where you're negotiating uh, the terms of use agreements. Um, and it's really you know, set by the market rather than you know, any type of economic regulation. I think the, uh, the, the precedents that have been set and the templates that are being developed by the Port Authority deals um, you know, are very deployable to other airports. You know, in terms of looking at the privatizations, that when we look beyond uh, the Gateway City, um, you know, it's been sparse, to your point. I mean, right. we've heard some rumors about Ontario, Burbank, and California. And it's kind of been it. They, you know, they just mentioned Midway. I'm like, why are you mentioning Midway to me again? And the Chicago would be out of its mind if they wanted to re-explore that for the third time. But well, I'm not sure they would be. But I think it's, it's such uh, <clears throat> such a patchy port, track record. Yeah, 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 that's right. what I'm getting at. Yeah, right. But but, but just getting to the the, the terminal idea, um, have you heard any interest from other airports sort of eyeing this? I know Miami has been pouring a lot of dollars into modernizing the airport, for instance, not in the same manner as we're doing with JFK, but have you heard any other airports show interest in the um, what's going on with the Port Authority projects? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, and, and I think the interest really is going to be at, you know, the major hub airports that are slot constrained. And I'm slightly reluctant to name names because, you know, there are some processes going on now. Miami-Dade, case in point, you know, there's potential there. Orlando, you know, another San, there's been talk at San Diego uh, yeah, doing a transaction. Diego, right, sure. yeah. yeah. So... I mean, really, to assess where the need is, you just need to, you know, take a flight to one of those uh, terminals, look at the state of the facilities, you know, determine, well, gosh, you know, this is a pretty cruddy facility. You know, they're going to have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that there is a private sector solution that has been proven, I think it's going to prove, uh, you know, pretty interesting, uh, if not irresistible, to some airport authorities that don't want to issue more debt, um, you know, don't want to continue to put pressure on public sector resources when you have um, uh, private capital and private um, operators who are willing to come in and to operate the assets themselves and take the risk of um, operating the business, you know, actually relieving the airport from capital expenditure, mm-hmm. relieving the airport from um, O&M, and at the same time, um, acting as a commercial interface between the airlines and, and the airport in negotiating rates and charges uh, to, to call at the, air, uh, at the terminal. Okay, we've got one more question. I think that's all the time we'll have. But I'm just curious um, from your point of view, because I think what we hear a lot, too, about impediments is the attitude of the actual airport authorities saying, well, we're giving up control. You know, how can we do this? It's a political process. Have you found that attitudes, you know, through the vise of Port Authority striking a lease 
with the city and, and getting these airport deals off the ground that, that attitudes have changed somewhat in talking to, to other sort of authorities out there? Yeah, well, well they have. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we don't hear so much about losing control because mm-hmm. these deals are um, contractually based. The authority or the airport, you know, does retain uh, supervision, access, um, uh, you know, contractual risk and revenue sharing. And so it's not as if they're just handing over the asset mm-hmm. and walking away right, from right. it. Sure. You know, they, they still um, will be um, enforcing provisions of the lease to ensure mm-hmm. that service levels are met to ensure that um, you know, laws are being complied with and environmental standards are, are being met. So I think it's really less uh, about concerns over control. I think you know, part of it is just learning more about how it can be done. Mm-hmm. It's early days, and there haven't been that many deals. You know, so getting the word out there uh, where people will know it. And I think importantly, and I have really have seen this in the Port Authority deals, is um, uh, creating a lease structure that provides alignment uh, between the airport and the investors, the operators, and the airlines. You know, so for example, and by contrast to the privatization deals, rather than a big upfront payment in a typical terminal code deal, you know, there will be a, uh, a revenue sharing arrangement where the, uh, the private operator will um, share a percentage of uh, non-aeronautical revenues with the airport, <laughs> will share a portion of aeronautical revenues with the airport on a percentage uh, basis. Um, so the airport um, has a vested interest in the success of the terminal co business because if they succeed, the airport receives, um, receives revenues. And so that's what I think the Port Authority deals have been been very good about doing, and the investors in those deals have been very good about doing, is ensuring that we have that um, alignment between um, what the airport's looking to do, which is provide the best customer experience and the best um, experience in terms of representing what their city is all about for for, for travelers and, um, and uh, earning money from the deals um, at the same time. My third category of investment, because I think it's another area that is extremely interesting, that's ancillary infrastructure on airport. So, for example, Conracs, transit deals. In the Conrack space, you know, again, we were very, you know, lucky to have been involved and privileged to, you know, work with um, uh, Conrack Solutions, Fengate and the related company on the Newark Airport uh, Consolidated Rental Car Facility. And it's really the first one that's been done on a private capital project finance uh, type basis, uh, but it's it's extremely suitable for private investment because of the way the deals are structured, where you have customer facility charges um, that are added to the the, uh, the invoices for the users of the rental cars, um, and so there is uh, an identifiable revenue stream, albeit demand-based, but which can be assessed and priced by the private sector. Um, and um, I think is going to provide a lot of opportunity for investment, uh, including in the near term in 2020, um, where I think there will be Conrack transactions elsewhere around the country following the Newark example. Great. Well, Kent, we've spanned uh, the globe here, or the the country at least. So I thank you so much for your time. And uh, please tune in next time uh, for the 2020 version of the Crossroads podcast. Anyway, thanks again. Brooke out. Thank you.